Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Today on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, we speak with Barstool Sports CEO Erica Nardini about the site's legion of stoolies, her plan for making the company into the next vice, and diversity issues in the media and ad biz. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Perlberg. Joining me from the English delegation is Jack Marshall. The English delegation. Yeah, that's a little I Olympics like that. humor. That's new. That's really well, popular. it's a you know, it's the Olympics. We're feeling festive here. Well, and, in Great Britain, technically. Oh, sorry. Yeah, right. Is it the UK? UK encompasses well, all Great Britain. All right, we'll get to that on our other <laughs> podcast, um, which is uh, geography today. But uh, we are joined. Speaking of sports, we are joined. Uh, very excited to be joined by Erica Nardini. She is the CEO of Barstool Sports. Uh, you may know her as the chief marketing officer of AOL from a few years ago. She was with Demand Media, Yahoo, Microsoft. Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this is a new title for you. Uh, this is a new, new role. We were, just, we were just saying you, you've been at the helm of Barstool Sports for a few weeks uh, when people think of Barstool Sports, I'm not sure, maybe our, our, our listeners are familiar with the site. It's sort of a um, kind of a male-geared sports site, um, sort of, uh, I mean, it's been described maybe as a little lowbrow. Uh, I have some headlines here that I'll read later, but I'm curious, what drew you to to that site? I mean, I would think sort of, uh, when, when people would think who's the new CEO of Barstool Sports, they, they might not think, you know, first off, a female executive. So what, what drew you to that role? Sure. So, you know, I'm certainly not the stereotypical choice for Barstool Sports. When I think about Barstool Sports, Barstool Sports is what guys talk about at a bar. It's sports, life, news, girls, um, topical humor, um, those are really the things that, that guys talk about, and Barstool encompasses that. I was really attracted to Barstool for a number of reasons. One is I've been a fan of Barstool since Dave Portnoy started it in 2004. I lived in Boston at the time. Right, so it started as a kind of Boston sports blog? As a paper. As a paper. It started as a paper focused on sports and gambling and betting. And, and they would just hand it out? Hand it out. Okay. At the train stations, there was a you know little paper box that you would find it in. Um, he evolved it to a blog. He recruited several bloggers in the New York area and the Philadelphia area and Chicago, really right down the northeastern corridor. And the things that I find captivating about Barstool are... One, it's a brand that's born out of the most rabid uh, sports markets in the U.S., Boston, Philly, New York, Chicago. And the way men in particular feel about Barstool is analogous to how they feel about a sports team. So the guys that I grew stoolies, up... Stoolies, right? Stoolies, They yes. call themselves the, they call the readers themselves of the stoolies. Site. Yep, that's exactly right. So, you know, my husband is a stoolie. He talks about Barstool the same way he talks about the Patriots. Um, you find correlations to that with the Mets in New York and the Jets and the Bears. Um, and it's very interesting to me to see a brand that has harnessed that type of passion and intention from its audience. I see, we, I see us in a social era right now. And so, uh, to me, a social era is about fandoms. 
And Barstool is a brand that has a fandom. My last company, I focused on music artists and enabling music artists to have a direct-to-consumer platform. Barstool has that organically because it speaks to an audience in a way that's fresh, in a way that's different, in a way that's very relatable. And it has a very strong business model built underneath it. And so for me, the choice to come to Barstool was, one, I have never seen an audience like the Stoolies, and that is a rare gem. What what do you think um, is the reason for that? I mean, is that just sort of the commenting through the years kind of builds this the sense of community? Because it's not – it's. I, I'm, how, how many uniques or, or so do you get a month? month? It's not like th- that big, but it's super dedicated. It's super dedicated. So the uniques range from four to six million every month. The page re- page views off of that unique base are astronomical. When you look at the footprint that Barstool Sports has in Twitter, on Instagram, growing on Snapchat, it's very, very rabid. And I think there are a couple things that drive that. One is... The writers and bloggers and podcasters and video talent at Barstool have really tapped into men and what they talk about, how they talk about it. Two is they've created a tribe that feeds itself. The third piece that I find really unique is that Barstool is a company that wears its inside on its outside. So what happens inside of Barstool is very conversational and public to stoolies and to fans of Barstool. Second, fans of Barstool, stoolies and otherwise can can talk to these guys at any point in time and they talk back. They connect with their audience in a way you don't see traditional media companies connecting with their audiences. And then finally, they've built really interesting commerce experiences around those audiences. Merch is a very big business for Barstool. Events have been a very big business for for Barstool. The way they treat ad opportunities like content is a big business opportunity for Barstool, and and the audience relishes it. Well, that's interesting. I mean, you said, you know, you were sort of partially attracted by the strong business model. And it's interesting because four to six million uniques sort of in 2016 and a time when people are chasing scale and like it's all about being as big as you possibly can. Um, I mean, it sounds like, you know, that's sort of a slightly different approach going with, you know, as Steve said, sort of a niche, more focused audience. Um, But maybe just talk about you you mentioned sort of merchandise and events and some of that stuff. I think that's exactly the challenge that's happening right now in the media landscape, which is BuzzFeed has set the bar for mass production, mass audience. And there are many, many, many publishers chasing that, I would argue, a high percentage of them are caught in the middle. They haven't figured out mass production. They haven't figured out a voice that speaks to a mass audience. And that's created a lot of challenges for publishers. I've been in publishing, digital publishing, for the last 20 years. Um, the second side of that, the opposite end of the spectrum, are very niche brands who are very small, publishing very limited amounts of content to, to a, a very small and finite audience. Barstool's interesting because Barstool sits not in the middle, but Barstool sits in a place where there's a very loyal, rabid audience that is driving a tremendous amount of page views and time spent and repeat usage. 
Two is it has a very strong brand. And when you have a strong brand, you're able to monetize and create commerce opportunities around that type of brand that you couldn't create otherwise. So Barstool, uh, you know, BuzzFeed, great example, super mass. Everyone consumes BuzzFeed. But nobody's buying the T-shirt. Nobody's wearing the hat. You know, <laughs> nobody's buying the T-shirt. There's not a humor and a personality associated with BuzzFeed. What BuzzFeed is known for is short video content or blog, you know, post content that's distributed on Facebook pr- predominantly. Barstool's a brand someone relates to. It means something. There's a humor there. There's a voice there. And as a result of having that brand, it's a publisher that has a content business model, a commerce business model, and a conversational business model. What's the sort of breakdown there? I mean, uh, how much of your business would you say comes from traditional advertising? Um, How much, you know, is the commerce business make up a, a greater percentage? Is that growing? Great question. So Barstool's business model right now really rests on... I would say four revenue strategies. One is advertising, direct and indirect. So programmatic advertising, native integration, and brand partnerships. Two is merchandise. So we produce a tremendous amount of merchandise. Um, we sell a high volume of that. That's, that will be a growing part of our business. The third is events. So Barstool has a long history of creating events. We had an event um, this summer called Couchella. Where Couchella, Couchella, <laughs> um, at Caroline's on Broadway, and sold two, did two shows in one night, sold tickets nearly instantly. So, an, a growing event, physical events business, um, and you will start to see us expand on those lines of business. Um, from sort of a, an audience perspective as well, I mean, uh, sort of another big theme is obviously sort of the distributed media. You know, you mentioned Facebook, obviously. Um, uh, I'm just curious. I mean, you talked about sort of having a loyal audience. So, I mean, do you find that most of your readership is sort of coming direct to you as opposed to just sort of discovering this content out in the wild? Or Yes. Is that so, a different dynamic? Um, it's a very interesting dynamic. The majority of our audience today finds us direct. Our percentage of social referrals are growing exponentially. Um, One of the things I'm spending a lot of time thinking about is how do we harness the conversation around Barstool Sports and bring that to places that we own and operate and that we monetize. Um, I'll give you a great example. Dave Portnoy and I had a conversation yesterday with a distribution platform, and we were talking about a particular time slot for something. And his first instinct is always, will this work for our crew? And that's what he calls stoolies and the fans of Barstool, which is unique. I think the word crew is unique and the vernacular of these are our people. His first instinct is, will this work for our crew? And I agree with that. And our second instinct is, can it help us find new members of that audience? And so how aggressively we we pursue distribution opportunities is something that I'm mulling over and chewing on nearly incessantly right now. Um, There's risk at having a distributed brand. There's certainly benefit to having a distributed brand, especially with a company that has 4 million uniques. Like There's a ton of upside in terms of 18 to 49-year-old males who are on Facebook and on Snapchat and on Instagram. But for you, it sounds like you need to sort of convert those people into 
you know, exactly right. So exactly right. And um, what I want to do and I'm very passionate about is using data to do that. Right. Which is I believe that a fan of Barstool Sports, if you're a fan of Boston sports and you just want to read El Prez, you should be able to do that. If you're a fan of viral you know, humor and comedy, you should be able to see more of that type of content. You know, it was interesting Instagram stories last week or the week prior. We're getting very aggressive about testing distribution. And, you know, we started to put head-to-head tests of how does our content perform on Snapchat versus how we perform on Instagram stories. And we're getting a ton of learnings in both realms that will help inform, you know, when do we feed ourselves first? What lives on things that we control? What content lives in places we control? And what should live out in the wild and help bring new people to us? All right, we're going to take a quick ad break, but we'll have more with Erica Nardini right after this. Hi, this is Jason Gay, sports writer at the Wall Street Journal, and I have a podcast called Free For All. And guess what? It's not just sports. We'll also talk about some real estate, some music, some culture, some fashion. I could talk about fashion. It's the Free For All. Become a subscriber on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts. And check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. We're here with Erica Nardini, the CEO of Barstool Sports. Uh, So, Erica, I wanted to, for our listeners who might not be super familiar with uh, some of the controversies around Barstool Sports, I wanted to just read some headlines. Uh, This is from, I think, this morning or or yesterday. Uh, Barstool U, Monday Smoke Show, Cat from Arizona State. Um, Then there's obviously some, some... sports headlines. Uh, this South African swimmer trying to intimidate Michael Phelps is going to wake up in a body bag. Uh, I like that one. Uh, ESPN anchor criticizes Ichiro Suzuki for never learning English, and whoops, he speaks fluent English. So it's sort of fun, light sports content, but uh, as you mentioned, there's like a um, there's a vertical that's just girls, mm-hmm. and it's just like Monday Smoke Show, Cat from Arizona State, or, or the various things. So Barstool has been sort of criticized in the past as being sexist uh, as being sort of, you know, unashamed in, in, in that. And I'm curious, you know, as a female executive, now the CEO of the company, what's your view on that? I mean, is that, are you going to change that or is that is that not the idea? The first thing I would say is that the, their choice and the Chernin Group's choice in having a woman CEO is a decided, uh, is, is indicative of the DNA of this company at its core. The second thing I would say is right now there's very little data that underpins what we surface and promote from a content perspective on Barstool. And what I'm very committed to is creating the right type of content for the right type of audience, which sounds banal, but I'm really interested in understanding what our audience wants and delivering that content to them. When I think about Barstool Sports, I've spent you know, a ton of time these last five weeks looking at comparables. And the, you know, the things that I've been looking at are the, the inception of Vice and Vice's creation out of the Montreal punk scene. And in its very early days, what Vice looked like is very different from what Vice looks like now. But they've always held true to 
the voice of a youth generation. And I don't believe that there's been a vice around men's comedy and sports. And I believe Barstool can assume that type of mantle. I also look at, you know, late night comedy, right? If you look at the the beginnings of the Letterman show and Letterman wasn't afraid to let a joke bomb and he played a lot with the camera and he played a lot with the content. There was, you know, one episode where he just had a monkey on camera for the in, the entire time and and people thought he was crazy but it created a very loyal following and it showed his ability to take risk and innovate. So, you know, there there is currently a broish undertone to Barstool Sports, no question. Um, the second thing that's very interesting about it though is we have an exceptionally high rate of audience participation. So when you see the smoke show of the day, there are hundreds of applications to of girls, in this case, submitting photos. And that's powerful. I really think that there are very few media companies today where audiences are aggressively vying for promotion. Um, I also believe that, that Barstool Sports is a company that has to innovate and evolve. And what I want to do is to use data. I want to use the intelligence and point of view of our bloggers to be able to do that. Do you think that today Barstool is more, uh, you know, sort of in the group of um, publishers like maybe Bro Bible and um, Lad Bible and various Bibles, all the Bibles and uh, sort of bro content? And that, I guess what you're saying is maybe the idea is and it should be said that the Chernin Group you mentioned, they acquired a majority stake in Barstool in January, uh, which valued the company at, at about 10 to $15 million. So clearly, the, the, are, they, are they hoping that you kind of move it up market uh, or you know, kind of create the what's, – what's the upside for them there, you know, that this is going to be sort of the vice, the vice of sports or the vice of young men? There's a you know there's a huge amount of upside with barstool sports overall. Like when if you've spent any time on the website, you see huge opportunity for optimization and improvement. Um, I look at our podcast as a very very strong first indicator of the success and the brand that this company will assume. Um, and in that case, I think we are very different from the Laddie Mags and Bro yeah, Bible. Yeah, I was just, we were just talking about the podcast. It's like, it's very smart content. Very, it's very smart funny. content. Yeah. It's funny. We have great guests. These guys have a very strong point of view. Um, and they're very funny. You know, we had El Prez, Big Cat, PFT Commenter at the RNC and then the DNC. And these guys are there, and they're holding up, you know, El Prez is railing against Roger Goodell. Uh, Big <laughs> Cat and PFT comment commenter are, you know, debating whether Joe Flacco is an elite quarterback or not. And what we saw was not only was there a tremendous amount of heat around those topics, but what we saw is young men going the day after and the day after that and the day after that with their own signs. And so there's something very different about Barstool and very smart. And I will lean into those attributes really heavily. To, to Stephen's point, it seems like um, the sort of lad bro content is sort of hot at the moment. I mean, is that it seems like there are sort of multiple people attacking that space from from different directions. Um, 
So I'm just curious, I mean, over the next sort of 12 months, two years, I mean, what's the... What's your role and sort of how, how do you see that playing out? I agree. Something has happened in this space. I, I even look at Unilever um, buying Dollar Shave. Mm-hmm. And there is something that's accelerated around big brands wanting the elusive 18 to 34-year-old male. You also see it with media companies, right? Woven, Jukin. Um, you see a lot of companies looking to appeal to this audience. Barstool has a ton of natural advantage in this space. One, this is a company that's been around 13 years. Two is it invented a lot of the formats that you see being used and replicated elsewhere. And three, what really, you know, back to the question of what attracted me to to Barstool Sports to begin with is these guys are not afraid to innovate. And they really want to push boundaries around, you know, podcasting. We started, pardon my take, in March. And now we have a top four, often number one podcast in sports. If we can do that in seven months and nine months, like there's a ton we can do. And I would look to us to be very aggressive, very creative, funny in that space and and genuine. You know, the, the difference in the company, I've worked at a ton of media companies, and what's different about Barstool Sports is they live it. It's not a nine to five job. We we created something, one of our bloggers, uh, John Feidelberg, created something called Saturdays for the Boys. And Saturdays for the boys, this past weekend, we had the Detroit Lions, the Red Wings, like major sports entities and brands for men tweeting us pictures of Saturdays for the boys. And it's an anthem as much as it is a content franchise, as much as it is a tagline. And we're just beginning to harness that energy and the, and that creativity. Do you feel like so Chernin, you know, acquired a majority stake. They brought you in, you're a, you know, a veteran media executive. Do you feel like the adult in the room? <laughs> I mean like you've got Saturday for the boys adult going supervision. on. Yeah, like is this a, are you are you responsible for not only bringing in, you know, new advertisers and new new deals and the relationships that you bring, but also just like no guys, we can't post that yeah. because you know, we have this deal with X or Y brand. I mean, has that I know you've only been there a few weeks, but do you anticipate that happening or has that already happened? I want to it's a great question. Um, I'm full of them. You really are. <laughs> I could stay here all day. Um I want to sit underneath this company. I think that I am accountable to these bloggers as much as they are accountable to me, and I want to make them successful. And I have a lot to teach them. I I have a lot to share in terms of distribution and monetization and content production and scale. I also have a lot to learn. There is something so unique about this audience and this culture that I have a lot to learn from that. Um, And I think the dynamic of a veteran in blogging, which is Dave Portnoy, you know, the blog father, and a veteran in media coming together makes for... Blog father part two. (laughs) Probably. Which was a great sequel. (laughs) Uh, So we were talking a little bit about um, just sort of... uh, I guess, you know, the the potentially sexism uh, charges against uh, Barstool. But I'm curious, you know, there 
these sort of issues just I guess sexism in general in the media and ad industry sort of been percolating mm-hmm. a lot lately, mm-hmm. um, stemming from one particular incident at uh, G- uh, ad agency JWT. Yeah. Uh, we don't have to get into that. Our listeners probably know all about that. But that kind of like sparked more conversation about um, gender diversity mm-hmm. in media and advertising. And I'm curious, you know, as a female executive, you've been through uh, you know, many different companies in the space how has that evolved? And I mean, what, what work has to be done? And is it something that you feel is important at even a company like, like Barstool, uh, which is focused on men? Are you trying to bring sort of more, you know, racial and gender diversity t- to that uh, company as well? You know, for sure. I'm a huge proponent of diversity and opportunity. And me sitting in this role is a great example of that. Like, I have entered a locker room where you would not expect to find a woman for the last <laughs> hundred years, right? And I take that really seriously. Um, I'm, ex- I'm, I'm passionate about it, and I'm serious about it. Um, I also, you know, I've worked in a lot of different types of environments. I grew up in the ad agency world where in the 90s where sexual harassment was just part of your job. Um, And I have to say that I honestly have never felt more comfortable in a team environment than I have at Barstool Sports. I've been comfortable in a lot of jobs, but um, just being the only woman here doesn't make me feel lesser or inferior. So you are the only you are the only woman on the team. I am the only full time woman on the team. Yes. Oh. How, about how big is the company now? We should about have asked seventeen that. people. Okay. So it's you know still relatively small. Um, you know, gender diversity is important. Diversity of perspectives and opinion is a p- important. I'm spending a lot of time at Barstool Sports. We just hired a- Shingy. <laughs> we did not hire Shingy. <laughs> we'll get to Shingy. I want to ask you about Shingy. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll get back to Shingy. Um, but we just hired a blogger, a gentleman named Chaps McNeely, who's a Purple Heart military veteran. He's a father of two. He lives in San Antonio, Texas. He is very diverse to our squad here in New York and in Boston and Philly and Chicago. And I like that. And Dave and I both want to find more voices like that. Okay, so I have to ask about the Shingy, as I as I mentioned. So Shingy, have you had Shingy on? We haven't had Shingy on. Maybe, have Shingy. Can you actually help? Maybe we'll get. I his. can help you get Shingy. Awesome. Okay, so Shingy was like the digital guru at AOL, and there was a New Yorker profile of Shingy in, that you are mentioned in, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, Shingy in the scene, Shingy is telling you about. Um, a cartoon that he drew of a bear wearing zebra print pants, and you say you love it, and the bear is a metaphor, and it's like this really amazing moment. So I'm curious, like, what? Um, first of all, what did you think of that New Yorker profile? Like, because it kind of painted this picture as like, here's this digital guru. What does he actually do? Yeah. And like, what what does Shingy do at AOL? Sure, sure. <laughs> um, so it's been a while since yes, I've yes, been at been AOL. Like t- so you know. Um, caveat any of any of my perceptions you know shingy is interesting shingy is one of a kind and his personal story is very interesting and you should absolutely have him on um shingy if you're listening shingy if you're listening we'll we'll tweet this out to shingy (laughs) um the other piece of it is you know shingy Shingy has a controversial title. His title is Digital Prophet, which just begs yes, a tear ridicule. down. Begs ridicule. Um, but did, was, was that self-appointed? Yes, or? for sure. Okay. 
Um, but what Shingy is, has been very effective at at AOL, what I will say is, Shingy did a great job of talking about a digital future, and he has been at AOL. I want to say ten plus years. Came out of the European teams, moved to the U.S., and at that point in time, the articulation of what the future was and why AOL should be considered as relevant within it was a big need at AOL. And he spends, I would say, forty-nine weeks a year on a plane, talking to marketers about what the digital future looks like. And it's like good for AOL's. Brand right. I mean, that's sort of he's kind of like you know goes on the speaking circuit. He's and, on the speaking circuit. Yeah. He's out there. He's you know talking about future trends, and you know the hope is there's you know I think that some correlation of what Shingy's talking about and what AOL is investing in and doing. What, what did you think? I mean, this obviously is after your your tenure, but uh, Verizon acquired AOL, yeah. and um, that company just changed so much since probably you started and yeah. to now and from sort of a content to really pushing forward into ad tech. So I'm, what did you think about uh, that acquisition and, um, you know, your, what were your conversations like, I guess, with some of your former employees? Sure. So super proud, like thrilled for Tim Armstrong and, you know, what he's done in the last three weeks with Yahoo is right, yeah, unbelievable. Yahoo as well. um, when you look at AOL, you know, they did the deal to have all Microsoft inventory, which was a big deal and a really difficult integration. Then they bought Millennial Media, uh, acquired by Verizon somewhere in there, and now have bought um, Yahoo. And when you think about just the change in the last 27 months for that company, it's it's almost hard to, to grapple. Um, I'm really proud to have worked at AOL. I'm proud to have really focused on video and as a scalable syndication platform. And I think that the combination of Yahoo, AOL, Microsoft, Millennial, you you get a somewhat viable competitor to Facebook and Google, which I think the market Do you think wants. you do? I mean, there's been obviously a lot of talk of, about, you know, that being the strategy over the past few. I mean, do you think it is sort of a viable I sort of think that Google and Facebook are runaway. You know, there's there's no stopping those companies and there's no changing how much of the ad dollars and time and focus those companies will just suck in and absorb. But when you look at publishers and you look at advertisers who are looking who are going to RFP five people for something and need a viable alternative AOL's now going to get that call when i was at AOL they weren't going to get the call we weren't big enough to be forced into that top 5 bucket and now you've got to make the call and you know, yes, there's questions on the how valuable that inventory is. Desktop display is arguably the least valuable inventory on the planet at this point. But they're now in conversations that that I don't think they would have been in had Tim not a gotten acquired by Verizon and b you know started to acquire all of the major publishing platforms. All right, well, Erica. Thank you so much uh, for Thank joining us. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, 
I guess we'll find out how, uh, I guess, uh, plugged in the stoolies are because I'll be looking at my Twitter feed for yes, you should. all the mistakes that we made. Please yeah, tweet at Jack. Stoolies listening, tweet at Jack Marshall uh, <laughs> if you have any complaints about this podcast. And uh, yeah, so Erica, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you, guys. Uh, all right, catch us next time on the WSJ Media Mix podcast. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com slash WSJ.